Welcome to Days of Roar, a Detroit Tiger podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorosh, and I am here with Tigers beat writer Evan Petzl coming off a too terrible week of baseball. Tigers were four and three, took three of four out from Minnesota, lost two of three to Boston, played some very good baseball games against Minnesota. Played some very bad baseball games against Boston. How you doing? How was Boston? (laughs) How was Boston? I wasn't in Boston. You weren't in Boston? No, I was not. I was was not in Boston, but I was at Comerica Park for the series against the Twins. And I guess we should start there because we had talked about it the night of the first game of the series. I mean, I called you and I said, man, you remember last episode and the rant that I had about how, you know, it's not getting any better. And, And you said, you said, Ev? When they lose a game like this, they always figure out a way to turn it around. They give you some type of belief. And then, you know, it all goes right down the drain again. And I said, no, I think this is it this time. This is the this is the final straw. Like, it's only going to get worse. Like, there's no way. I had no belief. Because if you remember, that game, that first game of the series was absolutely terrible. And oh. that, was, that was no good. Joey Wentz was on the mound, gave up eight runs on 10 hits in one walk over three innings. It was four runs in the first inning, three runs in the second inning, and then one run in the third inning. And the Tigers were down eight nothing, you know, at the after the third inning. And you know, Nick Mayton hits a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning um, to kind of you know make the score look a little bit better than it really was. But the Tigers were down nine nothing going into the bottom of the ninth, and it was it was some bad baseball, and it was a bad pitching performance from. Joey Wentz in particular, and, and the bullpen, you know, kind of saved the day the way that Bo Brisky was able to throw and, and Tyler Holton and Jason Foley came in and did his thing. Alex Lang, he had his three walks again. We're, we're just so used to that these days. Uh, but, and Zach Short had to pitch to, to finish things out. Lord is ERA to 1.80 um, in a handful of appearances. But still, that game happens, Mark. And I call you and I'm like, I'm like, dude, it's, it's over. This is ridiculous. Like, I went on my rant and everybody heard it on the pod last week. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. And you tell me they're going to turn it around and then they go out and they win six, nothing against the twins. Then they win nine to five. Then they win three, nothing. So two shutouts within, you know, three days and then also a nine spot on offense. And then I was like, okay, shoot, like (laughs) here they are. And so obviously, you know, what happens in Boston happens in Boston. I wasn't on that trip. There's going to be a few trips down the stretch here um, just because of where the Tigers are at in the standings that I won't be making. Also, I get married in September, so um, got some big life things coming up to make sure that I'm able to, you know, be prepared for for all of those things here at home. But just to kind of update people on where the Tigers are at, they're eight games out in the American League Central. Um, Those games against the Twins, I thought were pretty important. I thought they mattered. And now they get ready to go on the road. And they got two games against the Twins on Tuesday, Wednesday, four games against the Guardians. I got to ask Mark, just like off the bat, it was a four and three week. I want to know your thoughts about the you know Minnesota and Boston series. But is there any hope for this team? Like, is there anything to really like get excited for? Like, could they make a move? Is it possible? I mean, eight games out doesn't seem that bad. But at the same time, you're still eight games out. Evan Petzold. This is our 24th episode. We've talked a lot of baseball, you and I, over time. Are you actually asking me this question seriously? Because you know what my answer is. There's no chance they're climbing back in this. But they this sucked is- me back in. That's what I, I was saying that same thing on, a, on the pod last week. And then I was saying the same thing on Monday after the loss when I called you. And then they sucked me back in. They made, they made me think, well, maybe. Maybe well, it's possible. I, I had something I wanted to discuss this week, and we will discuss it later. And this is a perfect time to set it up, which is how bad are the Minnesota Twins? That's my point. That's my point exactly. Okay. Now, at the same time, I also wanted to discuss, we have watched the AL East all year. They have used the Detroit Tigers as a rag doll for the entire season. They have they have literally beat them to a pulp. And then they come back when they're feeling bad about themselves and choke them out and beat them more. So we're going to talk about this later, but the Tigers are in a terrible division. And so when they play teams within their division, sometimes you go, yeah, we're not that bad. But when they play the rest of baseball, and the Tigers are now, I think, 10 games over 500 in the division, 
nine or 10, it gives you a false sense of where they are because they're, I think, 18 or 19 games below 500 against the rest of baseball. So the bottom line is, and just watching them play Boston, who is not a great team, but a decent team, all right, who is six games over 500 and actually legitimately in the wild card race. The difference between the teams and even the secondary players on both teams was was massive. And, you know, the bottom line is Detroit has four legitimate major league players in their lineup. And the rest is a prayer. You don't know what you're getting from day to day. So Just my to make sure to people, you, well, go ahead, go ahead. So when you ask me, do they have a legitimate chance? You're seduced by the idea that they have a Minnesota twin team that's not good, that, but they still have to make up essentially in less than 50 games, eight games. They have no chance of doing that unless Minnesota gets in a a, a terrible bus accident on the way to the to the next you know game. It's just not happening. The math doesn't work, and more importantly, you have a team that's won three games in a row one time since May third. So how are you going to make up the ground? No, it's a good point, and, and just to make sure people understand exactly where the Tigers are at, fifty three and sixty five is the record right now. Eight games back in the American League Central, twelve games back in the Wild Card Chase. I don't think there's any chance, but then again, they, 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 they make me believe when I see, you know, three straight wins against the twins and the way in which they do it and they look sharp and they play clean baseball. And then next thing you know, they're they're not doing that. I do have a quick quiz for you, Mark, if you want to be quizzed on something, Mm -hmm. you mentioned the American league East. I know we have a little bit more to talk about that. Maybe a little bit more specifically into what some of these teams do well, like the Baltimore Orioles, the Tampa Bay Rays, Toronto Blue Jays and, and Boston Red Sox specifically. But, the Tigers have played 25 games against the American League East. No cheating here. I want to know what you really think. How many games have the Tigers won? 25 games against the AL East. Seven. They've won five. They're huh. five and 20 against the American League East. And there you go. 15. And they're 21 and 13 against the Central. They are 21 and 13 against their own division. Yeah. So they're 20 below 500 against the rest of baseball. It's rough. So they're actually five below against the other teams besides the AL Central and the AL East. So still not good. Bottom line, not a really good baseball team. And down a starting pitcher because they traded Michael Lorenzen to Philadelphia where he pitched a no-hitter. And shout out to him. Hey, look, we got to give like Scott Harris and the Tigers credit for it. I think you can bundle Chris Fetter, Robin London, that mix as well. When we talked about the trade deadline, obviously it was dominated by the Erod conversation and that whole saga and the situation revolving him invoking his no trade clause and, you know, blocking the trade to the Los Angeles Dodgers. But you do got to give the Tigers a lot of credit for what they did with Michael Lorenzen. And we've talked about it over and over again. I mean, that's, that's what Scott Harris does. He was a, you know, more of a pitching guy in Chicago. We saw what he did with uh, San Francisco and the Giants, you know, when they were able to get a bunch of pitchers in there on short-term deals, make them really good. And then they brought him back for multi-year deals sometimes. And I think you got to tip the cap there. And I think that's something that you have to be excited about if you're a Tigers fan, is that we have guys, like, that. that's the thing. If you're a Tigers fan, this needs to be your mindset. We have Chris Fetter, we have Robin Lund, and we have a guy in, in the front office at the very, very top who can go out there and find pitchers that those two guys can optimize. I think found, that's that's a huge plus. Well, he found two pitchers that he could optimize. And but, I, I think we're leaving out the part where he paid Matthew Boyd $10 million. And I facepalmed the moment he did that. And it turned out to be what we expected it to hey, be. Hey, but we talk about it all the time. How many times do you have to be right? Also, you know, no one really knew that Matthew Boyd was going to get injured. Obviously, he was coming off the injury. I understand that. But there was no guarantee that this guy's going to get injured. And if he hadn't been injured, they would have been able to trade him for at least something, either, you know, marketing him as a 
reliever, a starter, or kind of a hybrid between the two. The fact is, he got hurt. It wasn't like he had no trade value. Chase and Shreve, who we're going to talk about, had no trade value. There's a little bit of a difference there. Now, Shreve was a minor league deal. Tyler Holton was a waiver claim. Holton, great pickup. But the fact that you go out there and you sign two free agent starting pitchers, one of them gets hurt. It's not an underperformance issue. Granted, he wasn't performing great, but also he was dealing with, with something the entire time. He said he never really felt right. He was always trying to get back to himself. That's how Matthew Boyd talked about his season you know, pre-Tommy John. And then you have Michael Lorenzen, who you're able to go out there and you develop into a pretty damn good pitcher. And it's not just like, oh, yeah, we made him better. Like, we're not going to tell you how. It's like, no, like, like the proof is in the pudding. Go look at the pitch mix and the way that it changed from last season with the Los Angeles Angels to now with the Detroit Tigers. And I understand that he had, you know, Lorenzen had kind of started to figure some of that out down the stretch with the Angels. But the Tigers helped him put polish on it. And that's where you give credit to Chris Fetter, Juan Nieves, and Robin Lund in that entire pitching department. So I do think that's something that's encouraging, right? Like when you look forward and you say, okay, how are the Tigers going to build a rotation? I'm not worried about how they're going to build a rotation. That's Neither part of why, that, and that's part of why I say, don't re-sign Erod. I don't care what it costs. Don't do no, it. I, I, Spend I, I the money wanna, on a bat. All right. Um, I think they need to do both. They're going to have a $60 million payroll at the end of the year if they do keep Erod. So there's absolutely zero excuse for not signing both a pitcher and a bat. They don't spend a ton of money on a pitcher. They're not, it's not like they're going to sign Julio Urias, okay, which would be a hell of a good idea if they were serious about winning, but they're not but, serious about winning. But Mark, they're, give me Matt, Mark, Mark, give me Matt Chapman. Give me Matt Chapman, pay him the bag, and then go out there and get another hitter on like a one-year deal. And, and somebody that has upside on a one-year deal that maybe you could trade, maybe not, maybe it's a two-year deal, maybe it's a one-year deal with a, a, a club option. Regardless, go get me those two things. I'm not concerned about pitching whatsoever. Right. I would rather have them spend more money on Matt Chapman than you know sitting back, waiting, and, and just kind of playing the one-year deal again. Go get a real bat, a dude that can play in your lineup, and and figure out the pitching and let that kind of you know be its own thing because we've seen Scott Harris do that over and over again. We've seen Chris Fetter develop over and over again. That that they they have proven themselves in that category. Yes. I don't think you need Erod. All right. For podcast decorum, let's do something because we're already into it. I just want to qualify it. We're gonna to go to the big two. Question number one are they playing out the string or posturing for twenty twenty three? And I think we've been discussing that a little bit already. So are they playing out the string or are they past, posturing, excuse me, for 2024? Go ahead. I mean, I want to know where you sit on this. Like as, a, as a, somebody who's sitting back and is the casual fan that's, you know, more watching from afar, like what sense do you get? Because for me, I, I get the sense that this team is, is they're, they're sticking to their mantra of like win every game, win today's game. They believe it. You know, you have guys that, we're talking about the playoffs still. Spencer Torkelson um, had a had an interesting quote about that recently where he said, hey, look, like the Twins are a good team. Cleveland's a good team. And now you can debate him on those things. But he said, look, we don't feel like we're out of it yet. We don't feel like, you know, we're, we're going to mail it in until we're going to mail it in. Like until we're officially out of the race, we're not going to act like it. But I do you know, believe in and I do believe in some of that, though, Mark. I think that that's exactly the mindset you have to have if you're a young team who is going through some of these ups and downs. Look, this is a better team than last year. So let me Torkelson quantify. knows it. Green knows it. Everybody in that clubhouse knows it. Let me quantify the question then. I don't think the players are the ones mailing it in. Okay. The question becomes, is the front office mailing it in? Is the front office playing out the string? Or are they posturing for 2024? Well, yeah, because, they're mailing it in. I mean, are you kidding me? If they weren't mailing it in, I think that Parker Meadows would be up here. I think Cole Keith would be up here. I think Justin Henry Malloy would be up here. Now, whether those guys are uber successful or not, go look at the Tigers lineup. Like, just go take a peek at their lineup. And you go down that list and you say, would I rather have Cole Keith or would I rather have Nick Maton? Would I rather have Akil Badu? Or would I rather have Parker Meadows? Those are pretty easy questions to answer. And I think it, just from a pure talent standpoint, like that that's really what it comes down to. I don't care if they're not super refined against certain pitchers or they're still trying to develop or learn in the minor leagues. Like I get all that. Like I understand that you want them to get up here and stick up here, but there's not much season left. So even if they get up here, they're really not going to stick up here. They're going to you know play up here and then go into the offseason. So I don't think that 
I, I think that it's a little bit more of mailing it in from a front office standpoint. And that's just my opinion, um, only because we're not seeing guys that clearly have more raw talent maybe than players. Are. And, and you know what? What happens if Colt Keith comes up and he just he rakes? What happens if Parker Meadows comes up here and just rakes? I mean, sure, not everybody's going to come up to the big leagues and just rake. We, we've seen, I mean, look, as good as Riley Green is, he went through it. Torgelson, he went through it. I mean, and, and he's still going through it and, and to the point where he's trying to really become, you know, and, and reach his true potential. So I'm not saying that all these guys are going to come up here and just absolutely, you know, run the offense and, you know, it's going to be the greatest product ever on the field. But do they have more raw talent? Yes. All right, so let's, let's take a little inventory of what you said. And I want to clarify something in fairness. And holy smokes, Mark Gorash, clarifying something for fairness is a rare thing. Um, until, I think, Wednesday, and we discussed this last week. Yep. If you want to maintain rookie status, they need to stay in Toledo. So anytime after Wednesday, is fair game to recall players and likely between the at-bat minimum and the service time minimum, they can still maintain rookie status. And that's so, my point. If the front office felt like there was a real chance to go win something this year, that wouldn't matter. Well, we'll see. Well, but we're going to see this week because the implied obstacle of last week is now diminished considerably after Wednesday. So I'll be interested to see going forward over the next seven days, what's really going on here? Um, because, you know, in merging the two questions of the big two this week, and I'm kind of going to do that for the very first time in history, the second question of the big two is, who is on the roster in 2024? Who is on the bubble now? So you got guys like Maton, Badu, McKinstry, Haas, Short, Ibanez, you had pitchers like, you know, Wentz, Fado, Turnbull, Inglert, maybe White, which is unlikely. You know, he he seems to be almost a guarantee for next year unless he blows up. And we also thought that about Joey Wentz, who is now blown up and actually threw unbelievable for five innings yesterday in Toledo. But, uh, you know, and Alex Lang has now created a circumstance for himself where he becomes less reliable and almost a wild card. But you have all these players that you really just don't know. And especially players like Zach McKinstry, Akil Badu, Andy Abanez, you know, Nick Maton, you know, Zach Short, and, and to a certain extent, Eric Haas, and we'll get into that later, that you just, you're, you're not going anywhere with so many of these players. Now, are two of those guys probably very, you know, good quality utility players? Yeah, probably. Fine. Okay. But you can't have all of them. And you can't have all of them basically playing four to five times a week. You're just never going to be competitive doing that. So the question starts becoming, isn't it time to see if you have players that you've been developing in Toledo that may have more upside than what you're playing every day in the major leagues now. And I think you bring up a great point. And you and I are very good at trying to bring reality to the quality of play of minor league players. Look, Riley Green's a really, really good player. Spencer, Spencer Torkelson, I don't know if he's a really, really good player yet, He's had a damn good year. You you can say whatever you want, whether you think his year was good or not, but he's made a lot of progress. His consistency level has picked up a ton, and he's becoming more dangerous by the week. So he's definitely a player that's improved a lot and progressed a lot. So, you know, you need to add players to that mix, but look how much they struggled over the course of a year and a half in the major leagues, over the course of six or 700 at-bats, so many ups and downs, so much evolution and improvement as players. So you need to get started on that polishing, on that exposure, on that adversity train 
for players you think might be good, you need to let them suffer because now is free time to do that. Free time. That's what concerns me, though, is because the Tigers have a lot of guys who really haven't had that opportunity at this point in the season that are already on the 40-man roster. I mean, Ryan Crowder's been dealing with an injury. He's back. They're going to want to probably see him again. Andre Lipsius, he had an injury. He's on the 40-man. I understand people might not like him, but he's on the 40-man. Like, you got to get a look at a guy like that because you just don't know until you know. Wenzel Perez, he is on the 40-man. He is healthy. He is in Toledo. You're going to have to get a look at him. Parker Meadows, you're going to have to get a look at him, obviously. That's four guys right there that I just mentioned in, in Parker Meadows, Wenzel Perez, Andre Lipsius, and, and Ryan Kreidler. So you got four guys there, maybe Donnie Sands, maybe Donnie Sands. He's on the 40-man and he's a catcher. Do you not want to get a look at, at him again in the big leagues? He's only got no. a couple plate appearances. I know I you don't. don't. I know you don't, but I'm just saying decisions have to be made in the offseason. There's going to have to be decisions made on this entire roster up and down. So there's five guys right there. And sure, I guess you could say Donnie Sands is maybe a half. So maybe that's four and a half guys. Oh, and then you also got Justin Henry Malloy. You got Colt Keith, two guys who aren't on the 40-man roster. So you're looking at about any, anywhere really between, I mean, that's six to seven players that you're going to want to hopefully get a look at. And, and as a fan, you definitely want to get a look at. And if you're the Tigers, you would think it's a no-brainer to get a look at those guys before the season ends. How are you going to create the roster space? Like, how are you going to create the roster space in the 26 man to do that? I mean, I mean, is, is Andy Abanez going to go? Is like, like, how are you going to make, I mean, is Akil Badu going to go? Are you done seeing Akil Badu? Are you done seeing Andy Abanez? Are you done seeing Zach McKinstry? Um, Nick Maton, does he go back down? Obviously, they're going to make another transaction when Javi comes back. But like, you kind of run out of room to start. Is Eric Haas going to go? So those are decisions that they're going to have to make. And you're going to have to let some guys go down to the minor leagues or just straight up DFA some guys to give these other dudes some looks if you really want to. And those are decisions that the Tigers are going to have to make. And that means, you know, sending a player like Nick Maton back down to the minor leagues. That means, you know, sending down Akil Badu, like cutting Zach McKinstry. I mean, if, if you're, he's out of minor league options. So at that point, you're going to have to DFA him. Like, is that something that Scott Harris is ready to do? Those are questions that are going to have to be answered down the stretch. I think it's the biggest question is you have a lot of guys that you need to get looks at. How do you create opportunities for them? Because that, that was the promise was the earmark at bats to young players. And so far that's been Spencer Torkelson, Riley green and, and Kerry Carpenter. And I guess you can throw, you know, Nick Maton and Matt Vierling into that mix. I guess you can throw Badu, but there are other younger players that are coming and they're younger than those guys. And it's time to see what they can do. All right. So I watch other teams try to evolve themselves. And my question starts becoming, yes, Akil Badu has skills. He has some power. He has some speed. He's proven to be minus throwing, very competent defender in left field. Okay. What is he though? I mean, is he even have, a fourth outfielder? I, I, my question starts becoming, you had a very good May, very productive. But when you look at May, it wasn't like he hit 365. You know, he hit more in the 270-ish range. So my question starts becoming, if you're accepting okay as your best month, and then the other month months are so tragically, unplayably bad, what do you have? And it's year three. So if you're praying you get an acceptable month out of every three or four months and the other three or four months are not real productive, what kind of player do you have? It's not year one. It's not year two. It's year three. It's almost the end of year three. And I feel the so, same way about Zach McKinstry. He's in the same boat with how much he's played in other organizations with the Dodgers and the Cubs before coming over to the Tigers. And he has one really good month. And you even go back and you look at his last seven games right now where he's at. I mean, he's hitting 320 with three doubles. Here's the issue. Zero walks, seven strikeouts in his in last the, seven games. So like, it's in, not, it's sure he's sure. Zach McKinstry has hit a little stride here, but the underlying data with the walks and the play discipline tells me that ain't sustainable. He's going to go right back to being just as bad as he was outside of a one month best stretch of his career. That's another guy that it's just like, it, it's like, what is he? What is he really? Andy Ibanez and, and Nick Maton both. You, you can't 
have six utility men on your roster. You only can have two or three. That's my point. So these are what you pay a team president slash GM, you know, the, the boss is supposed to be making these decisions. These are hard decisions. These are roster decisions that shape your team, okay? And you got to make them. It isn't fun. You might be wrong. Happens all the time. But you cannot make a roster out of utility players. You need I, players. No, and I think that's why if the Tigers go out this offseason and they say, hey, we have a real chance to sign Matt Chapman, he can be our everyday third baseman. He will play, you know, I mean, look, that that's a guy who will go there and he will play anywhere from 150 to 160 games as your third baseman. Maybe a couple DH opportunities here and there, fine. But he's your everyday third baseman. The question becomes, does Scott Harris make the call on Nick Maton and say, yep, that didn't work out. We're going to have to just let him be in, in Toledo. Yeah, replacement piece for us. Right, but that's what I'm saying is, is he's going to have to make that call. But he's going to have to make that call. If it isn't Matt Chapman at third base, it's going to be somebody else. It's going to be a one-year veteran who can hit. It's going to be Colt Keith. It's going to be somebody. As, okay? a, as, opposed to, as opposed to maybe he just needs more time. He hasn't got enough opportunities yet. Nah, I, I, I heard Hinch discuss Nick Maton the other day, and it basically, he was, I think you already know the answer based on how much he played. He, he, he's played twice this week. He, he, A.J. Hinch does not think Nick Maton is an everyday player. At best, he's a utility player, and he's going to have to really hit a lot more to be that. He's not a good defender. Nick Maton is now descended into the abyss of playing time that kind of what he had in Philadelphia. The Tigers at least have made a decision, and Nick Maton's going to have to do a few hundred at-bats of hitting in Toledo to change their mind about just being a utility player. But didn't I, we I, know I, about I, Zach McKinstry, too? I... I mean, did we not? Like, when, I mean, when that, when that deal happened, obviously I know he got off to a hot start after a, a, a little rough stretch there. He got, you know, got really hot. We apologized to him and all that, but now he's been back to just same old Zach McKinstry. Like, is it not the exact same thing? Like, when that trade was made, didn't we all know exactly what Zach McKinstry was? In the same way that we all know what Nick Maton is now? But, I, but Zach McKinstry I, still stuck around. Listen, I... He gives, uh, he gives you more, so I get it, but... I'm, di I'm dizzy going back and forth on Zach McKinstry between you and I. All right, look, we're going to discuss this more. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Let's touch a little bit on the pitchers. I think that we're beating the utility player issue and, you know, the fact they have a roster crunch about it almost to death. The other issues we have is, you know, you got Joey Wentz, who was provided a huge opportunity and is basically pitched himself into a question mark but still has some upside. And I think that he's going to have to pitch himself back from Toledo, you know, going he's forward. So bad. He's been horrendous. Alex Fado occasionally throws a good game, but I think we also are pretty familiar with what he is. And he's a depth starter at this point in time, unless he improves pretty substantially from where we're at. Uh, you have Spencer Turnbull. Wait a second. Spencer's got some arm soreness because I think he lifted his luggage. Uh, yeah, Spencer's still experiencing command issues in Toledo, and he's doing exactly what he did here this year. He hasn't been good in two years. So I think uh, anybody that's trying to tell me Spencer Turnbull's a good pitcher, I would say to you he pitched a no-hitter. So did Phil Humber. Um, you got Mason Englert. Was not a huge Mason Ingler guy. Uh, another fringe bullpen piece. He was pretty good in spring training, though. If he can recreate the velo that he had there and then obviously the stuff, too, I think he's pretty nasty out of the pen. What did we learn this spring training? Mason Ingler and Nick Maytime were killing it. I think there's a lesson in that. 
Brendan White. I think Brendan White showed a lot of stuff, man. He, I mean, yeah, he has his issues once every three or four appearances, but the other two or three appearances are really damn good. What you learn about kid relievers, especially slider-heavy kid relievers, is the first year, you're inconsistent. Going forward, good chance the consistency improves and you really have a piece that you can really use. I think Jason Foley is a great example of that. So <laughs> I was just, hey, I was just going to say when you mentioned Brennan White, I was going to say he kind of reminds me a little bit of Jason Foley, not with the pitch mix and, and kind of what it looks like, but more in the sense of the mindset. Like I do think that there is an element of Brendan White where he just needs to believe and understand that like his stuff is good enough. He doesn't have to tinker with things over and over again. Like go out there with the pitches that you have, keep it simple, and you're going to be just fine. Like I do think there is a part of him that wants to tinker and tweak with every little thing, trying to read swings and then trying to make a, a, a subtle adjustment for a guy like that. I, I think his stuff is so good. He just needs to throw the ball and he, he just, just needs to pitch. And that's what it really comes down to. Yeah. Agree a hundred percent. I think Brisky don't, don't try it. to do too much. And I think Brisky's a little bit in that, you know, mode also. How great it's, has he it's been? been? It's been very, very good, but I still think as a reliever, uh, you know, he's gaining experience and he's learning how to pitch back to back. He's learning how to pitch and leverage. I thought it was fascinating and it gives us a chance to dovetail into a question you and I both have had for a while, which is uh, the other day, Matt Manning, I was really, I've, I've been pretty, I'm a pretty big Matt Manning fan. I've been very frustrated with, Matt Manning's pitching aptitude. That's my nice way of saying it. Uh, of ap- pitching aptitude. Um, lately, especially this year, you know, but what I found interesting was Matt Manning allowed one hit in five innings. Brisky came in through two miles an hour harder and gave up four singles. So if you want to understand the art of pitching and I'll rest in peace to the great Jim Price, you, it's not just how hard you throw. It's where you throw. It's the movement. It's the extension. It's the sequencing. It's the pitch execution. So uh, I think Bro Brisky is in a learning curve about some of those things. It's been pretty good. Let's touch on Matt Manning here for a second because I don't know if we saw an epiphany the other day. I'm hoping we did because you know my feeling about it. I've been pretty frustrated about it. I think he's the most stubborn pitcher in many a year in Detroit. Self-sabotages himself by thinking often he's something he's not, and he refuses to go to his strengths as much as he needs to. I think Chris Fetter, no matter what anyone wants to tell you, walked out to the mound in the second inning, and it wasn't like, oh, Matt, it's okay. Everything is going to be all right, son. I think it was much more like, listen, dummy, Fastballs, throw fastballs, locate them, throw them. You're getting away from the game plan. I'm tired of this crap. Throw fastballs. Because how many fastballs did he throw after Chris Fetter came mm-hmm. to the mound? Yep. I, I'm not sure he spun. I think he spun one pitch the rest of the inning. Fastball, 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 fastball. And guess what? You know who was happy about that? Mark mm-hmm. Boros was really happy about that. Because- I, I think, Mark, I think Matt Manning is caught in between. I think he has been for a long time. I think I think he's always been trying to develop really a second and a third pitch because the fastball is so good, but he knows that he needs other pitches because he doesn't want to be fastball heavy. I, I think he wants to be a strikeout pitcher, and who doesn't? But I think he wants to go out there and get a ton of Ks, rack them up, and be that dude, be that top of the rotation I'm going to pound it down your throat. I'm going to strike you out. I'm going to rack up seven, eight, nine strikeouts a game. And he just doesn't have that kind of stuff to do it. Like, that's just, he doesn't have it. And he wants to be that guy. Who doesn't? I mean, he's a guy that, look look who he was compared to coming up in the minor leagues. I mean, he was compared to some great, great strikeout pitchers because that curveball was so good. Curveball not as good. Finds the slider. And when he has it, he can get some strikeouts, sure. But at the same time, like it's still not a great strikeout weapon. None of his stuff is. His slider has a twenty-seven percent whiff rate. Like he's not he's not getting a ton of swings and misses. 
on the slider compared to like a true strikeout pitch. Last year, the slider had a 35.8% whiff rate. So his slider isn't as effective in terms of getting swings and misses. And I think that he wants to be a strikeout pitcher so badly that I think that's what he wants. And because of that, you go away from the fastball, you try to use your slider to get the strikeouts, and what happens? So I'm going to bring up two things. One, I think Matt Manning's slider and shape and pitch execution is much better. But you know what kind of pitch I call Matt Manning's slider lately? It's a head turner. You know why I call it a head turner? Because he's turning his head to look at the ball bouncing off the damn wall every time he leaves it in the middle of a plate. He did that four times the other day. And finally, every time he threw it, it seemed like it was bouncing off the wall in left center field. So the other part I want to bring up, and we've brought it up a couple of times before, and I always wonder why pitchers refuse to accept success sometimes. And here's my point. Last year, Savant likes to rate the effectiveness of pitches. Last year, Matt Manning's fastball was a minus eight. And in ranking pitches, minus is better than plus. Okay? And I think he was minus eight runs with his four-seam fastball last year. If you would have extrapolated how many innings he threw, and I think he threw about 80, to being a 150-inning season, Matt Manning would have had a top-five fastball, four-seam fastball for effectiveness in Major League Baseball. Remind me a lot of Joe Ryan's fastball. Not necessarily velocity-wise dominant, but execution and productivity-wise very dominant. It's the extension It's the slight movement. It was the command. It was a great pitch. It was a pitch because his breaking pitches were so inconsistent that he threw almost 60%, pardon me, 60% of the time, 58% of the time last year. And it was great. It was a damn good pitch. The other day against the Twins, after the talk from Chris Fetter, and he threw so many fastballs the rest of the game. You know what his fastball usage was for the day? After throwing very few of them in the first 15 pitches. What do you think his fastball usage ended up for the day? Got to be somewhere north of 50%. Yeah, 58%. So my point about Matt Manning is... But, it, but Mark, do you know what his fastball usage is for this season? Because I have that written down. Yeah, 48%. I got it forty seven point three now, but yeah. yeah. Why yeah. do you, why do you, why do you think I wanted to drive down there and slap him? It, it's like, do you, do you want to succeed or do you want to, you know? Be I think you want strikeouts, Mark. Yeah, well, I don't care about strikeouts. You know what kind of outs I care about? Outs. I don't you sound care like about AJ. Strikeouts. You sound like AJ Hinch right now. Yeah, you know who doesn't care about strikeouts? AJ Hinch. He cares about outs. Okay. And this, this is the conundrum of Matt Manning. The good news for the Detroit Tigers is if they're frustrated by Matt Manning and they don't want Matt Manning anymore, other teams are going to do the same data dive that you and I are doing right now. The Tampas, the Dodgers, the Mariners, all kinds of smart, pitching, rich teams. They're going to look at Matt Manning and go, hmm, I can fix this guy. And... I have no idea whether they will offer Scott Harris fair value because you only get fair value if teams respect you as a team president. And after what went on at the trade deadline, I can't tell you the respect level is what it was before the trade deadline. But you got to understand, Mark, Mark, people respect the Tigers and their pitching development. So wouldn't you look at his Savant page and immediately look at all the blue on the percentile rankings and say four percentile. He ranks in the four percentile for chase rate, the four percentile for whiff rate, the ninth percentile for strikeout rate. Walks aren't that bad, but like expected batting average, 27th percentile, expected slugging percentage, seventh percentile, barrel rate, ninth percentile. Wouldn't you look at all those things and say, Yeah, I'm not gonna trade. I'm not gonna trade the farm for that guy. I'm not, I'm not giving up that much for that guy. I don't really need that guy. I can go find that guy. I can go, I can go looking for agency. I can find that guy. I can find that guy maybe on a minor league deal and try to make him better. 
why am I going to give up my my top prospects for a guy like Matt Manning, who the Tigers couldn't fix him with Chris Fetter, Robin Lund, Scott Harris. I, if I'm another team, I don't know if I'm really going to be betting on the fact that I can fix Matt Manning over the rest of his contract. And, and even if I do, what's it going to take to get there? And, and, and how long is that process going to be? Like, I, I don't see him being so easily tradable. Like someone would take him, sure. But Scott Harris came out and said it after the trade deadline, we're not going to trade players for spare parts. And I think that might be all that you get from Matt Manning. He's a free agent after 2027. The clock continues to tick. And maybe you get one or two good years, but is it really worth it? Like if it takes you a whole year to fix him and, and then you finally get him fixed and then you got to count on him to repeat it over and over and over again. Like, I, I don't know. I would just turn him into a ground ball pitcher. You think? Well, here, all I'll say to you is just keep in mind in 2022 for barrel percentage, he was in the 70th percentile. For hard hit rate, he was in the 60th percentile. So his slider was also missing more bats. Well, his slider was missing more bats because his fastball was dominating more. Okay. He had a 197 batting average against with his four seam fastball in, in 2022, as opposed to what it is this year, which is, you know, a super hittable. Uh, hold on. Excuse me for a second. Oh, it, it actually dropped. Now it's, uh, it's down to 232. It was over almost over 250 before the last start. By my, the way. my point is go look at the percentile rank, the percentile rankings from 2021, 2022, and 2023. If, if you folks at home or on the road, if you want to pull over for this one, you might need to baseball savant.mlb.com and then look up Matt Manning and then cycle through 2021. 2022 and 2023 and it's almost all blue aside from his elite extension well which but at he, the same time yeah that's a problem I, I i like i like using the pictures but i also like to look into the pitch tracking numbers and yes his slider had a 35.8 percent whiff rate and a 23.7 put away rate in 2022 he actually has a better shape and better looking slider in 2023, but he throws it so damn much and it's sequenced in the wrong place that, you know, the whiff rate is down to 27% and the put away is down to 18.6%. However, what I will say to you, okay, is his slider allowed a batting average of 240 in 2022 and he's only allowing a batting average of 219 in 2023. So he may not be putting away as many people, but he is allowing fewer hits and his X batting average is also lower. Now but, his slugging, but his you know, slugging, but his slugging that's what percentage I was just gonna say. I was just gonna is say massive that. because when he's making a mistake with the pitch, he's leaving it in the middle of the plate. And as I said earlier, all it did is an example against the twins was bounce off the left field wall. Okay? 420 to 469. Yeah. It's it's a head turner, but it's a head turner as you turn and look at it bouncing off the wall. Okay. So my point is some of this is sequencing some of its command. The bottom line is he needs to throw his damn fastball more. And he found out about that this week. And I will be shocked if in the next start he does not throw more fastballs. And he needs to attack with them, and he needs to try to bully people with it. And that was why he was successful last year. It's curious that he's never tried it this year. I was flabbergasted how much his fastball usage was down, a pitch that was so effective for him. Anyways, it's enough. Matt Manning, we've devoted way more time to Matt Manning than he's deserved. It was a good discussion. I hope he listens to it. I can promise you he's heard the same thing from... Chris Fetter, Robin Lund, and Juan Nieves that you and I just discussed. It's a puzzle, and that's part of my frustration with Matt Manning is I just wonder if he's a good listener. All right, we're going to take our last break. We'll be back in a second. All right, we're back. Enough of the Matt Manning discussion. We did want to discuss a couple of moves this week. Why don't you tell us about who's leaving, who's coming? 
Yeah, first thing the Tigers designated for assignment, left-handed reliever Chasen Shreve. He's a guy they picked up on a minor league deal in the offseason. Someone that they really liked because of his splitter and some of the things that he was able to do. They thought he was going to be pretty effective against right-handed hitters. He ended up really struggling against right-handed hitters, and that was a little bit of an issue for him. They thought, okay, he's going to be able to pitch to lefties, and then you know we feel good about him against righties as well. They thought they could use him both sides. It would be really good with a three-batter minimum. Turns out that wasn't the case. What I found interesting about the DFA, though, Mark, is we were pretty tough on the Tigers for not trading Shreve and Jose Cisnero. Now, I still think they should have traded Jose Cisnero, and I still think they could have gotten something for him, but it tells you a lot that Jason Shreve cleared waivers. So all 29 other teams had a chance to pick him up, and they didn't do it. So I think that tells you a little bit. He wasn't being paid that much, so it's not like money was an issue like it was you know, back when the Tigers DFA Jonathan Scope. But nobody picked him up. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about his trade value. Um, clearly, there was nobody that, that wanted him. You know, they weren't going to give anything up for him, at least. Um, you know, maybe for cash considerations, but at that point, like, like why? Um, that's kind of irrelevant. I'm tired of the Tigers making deals for cash considerations anyway. So that was kind of the first move. That was the first domino. We kind of saw a little bit of that coming, though, when the Tigers claimed left-handed reliever Andrew Vasquez from the Philadelphia Phillies. He throws a ton of sliders. He's somebody who they like. He could be under team control, you know, moving forward if they want to keep him and hold on to him. This is almost like a two-month showcase for him here down the stretch. Um, we can get into those those moves if you have, you know, thoughts on that. But also the Tigers placed Javier Baez on the bereavement list. That happened um, on Sunday morning. They promoted Isan Diaz from AAA Toledo, a player that about a week ago they picked up off waivers from the San Francisco Giants. They had picked him up because they knew, hey, look, we're probably going to have to put Javi on the bereavement list at some point. His grandfather died recently. He had to travel back to Puerto Rico. The family was you know, arranging the, the schedule for the funeral services. They weren't exactly sure when Javi was going to leave. Turns out it's now. Isan Diaz comes up. I don't anticipate he's going to stay very long. They just really wanted a left-handed bat for some reason. And you know, so he gets the call. He gets the promotion. Javi obviously been going through it, but hopefully this gives him a chance to clear his mind and you know, obviously a lot going on in his personal life. Him and his grand, him and his grandpa were, were very close. Um, haven't got to talk to him about it specifically, but talking to AJ Hinch and some other people, you know, you hear about him telling stories of his grandpa in the clubhouse and, and things like that, obviously a special place in his heart. And so obviously, you know, we're praying for him. We're thinking of him and, and stuff like that, but hopefully he can get back on track when, when he comes back. But, Mark, any thoughts on on those moves, whether it's Shreve getting DFA, Vasquez getting picked up, you know, Javi going to the Breedman list. I think that's, you know, kind of its own thing in and of itself. But maybe the Isan Diaz promotion as opposed to, I don't know, Ryan Kreidler. I understand maybe they would have wanted Diaz over Kreidler a week ago when Kreidler was just getting back and comfortable in Toledo. But it's been a week from now. I mean, he, he's been in there. He's been in Toledo for, it's got to be more than 10 days by now. It, it, to me, it kind of feels head-scratching, Isan Diaz. I don't really like it, but but that's just me. What do you think? Well, first of all, as far as chasing Shreve, swapping him out for Vasquez, hey, look, part of the shuffle that you go through in a in a baseball season, and they obviously think they can optimize Vasquez a little more. He throws 87% sliders. Pretty tough on left-hand hitters. Not too tough on right-hand hitters. We'll see what happens with that. Just trying to get better. It wasn't like Shreve was very good. Um, the Javi business, can't forget that he kind of injured his leg getting out of the box last day playing. They were worried he could even play the next day. Seam minor, be gone for a few days. Hopefully he feels better when he comes back. Um, just not doing much against the fastball. Just really fighting it. Somehow gets a good swing in when there's guys on base and runners in scoring position. I think his approach is a lot better. Just don't understand why he doesn't take that approach to other at bats during the game, but that's that's a thought for another day. You know, look, I mean, Isan Diaz, holy smokes, man. I mean, a pretty notorious minor league triple A hitter. Uh somebody that in every opportunity in the major leagues has sub six hundred OPS his time. Not a great defender. Just really wonder what the hell they're thinking about when they're doing this stuff. I mean, here's Ryan Kreidler, who was good enough to play for them in his good enough uh, to make no, the opening day roster. Yeah. Known known to be a favorite of 
AJ Hinch, uh, and Torkin Green. It's you know part of the mix. A really really good defender. Uh, probably the best utility defender they have. For those of you that think Zach Short is that guy, he's not. Um, but yeah, I it, it I I tweeted it. It it was very curious. It was very Scott Harris to be really really honest with you. Um, there are times when I really shake my head about you know what's going on upstairs. I'm never a person that's very happy with the Tigers front office, as my friend Lynn Henning likes to remind me of constantly. The it's a fight we've been having for a decade with each other as we eat lunch together. And, you know, to be really honest with you, when you want to review track records about my unhappiness and why and Lynn's unhappiness or happiness and why, uh, if it was a football game, it would be about 73 to six right now in my favor. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is, yeah, Ryan Kreidler don't really understand what they're thinking unless they think they know what they have. So that's all going to be over. It's not even worth discussing at length very much because Isan Diaz is going to be back at Toledo in about four days. And maybe DFA'd. Even, right, maybe DFA'd. And we're not even most likely DFA'd to be really blunt about it. And, you know, the time has come. I think this is a good time to transition into the point. The time has come for Scott Harris to start making some decisions. There really hasn't been too much this year that you can hang your hat on when you look back at his first year. He gets to think, you know, I think a lot of people like what the draft was. It was pretty aggressive. It was high schoolish. Um, they've done some things. I think uh, we saw, you know, Paul Wilson, we, we learned, has a UCL strain this week, which I don't know if you saw that of, but doubt. Uh, Doubt that he throws until the instructs after the season, if then. Um, but that's okay. I mean, kids get drafted with TJ all the time. So, you know, if, if it's an issue. But I thought that was an interesting tidbit that was not divulged at the time we discussed the draft by anybody. Um, but, yeah, the time has come for Scott Harris to start making some moves. Because, really, when you look at the first year in, in the draft, in many ways, the best part of the draft was a function of Al Avila's incompetence, was not a function of Scott Harris. I mean, he, yes, who he chose was a function of Scott Harris, but the draft position was manufactured by one Al Avila. So, Scott, need to start adding some players, need to start getting bolder, need to start making some moves, because when all you have to answer for your first year is team president is uh, Tyler Holton. Um, I think there's got to be some questions asked as to what's going on. You know, hopefully we can see a, a few players to see if they're bad or good or show some flashes. But, you know, having a roster of seven utility guys and suppressing minor league players that may be better in 2024 it's just really kind of curious to me it doesn't doesn't make me feel good which is exactly why i went on my rant last week so uh you know it's it's part of the questions that you start asking yourself and you know a lot a lot of times people don't like being second guessed in the press they think people like us don't have informed opinions or nuanced opinions or professional opinions. And, you know, I can tell you there are, I'm sure, some things that I would probably agree with about that. But at the same time, I think you and I are a lot more than just two guys talking about baseball on the Internet. Both have a lot of experience and pretty sharp eyes. You're in the locker room. You watch every game. You are a professional beat writer and, you know, I am a internet sensation baseball analyst, second guesser. That's well, I also think we're, I also think we're fair too. I mean, I think that's what really matters is like, it's one thing just to, to shout, just to shout, but I also think it's important to back things up with the data and the information. Again, like I said, I think that the, the Michael Lorenzen trade, that should have all Tigers fans excited for what Scott Harris can do when it comes to acquiring 
pitchers. Tyler Holton, same way. Zach McKinstry, we saw a little flash. Like obviously there was a there was a reason for that deal, you know, when it was made. But aside from that, like there isn't a lot to hang your hat on from from an offensive standpoint. Um, you want to talk about Matt Veerling? I'm not even going to get you started on that, Mark. Conversation for a different day. Utility I, maybe, I, I have a little bit of a different opinion. I think he's a really, really, really good fourth outfielder for you. But regardless, you look at Nick Maton, you look at Matt Veerling, you look at Donnie Sands. Like we'll see what Justin Henry Malloy is, but it, we're going to see. You know what? What can Scott Harris do when it comes to acquiring and developing? hitters and in developing position players because so far I'm not super enthused about it, but I am about the pitching. I think that that's very impressive. I, I love what very, you did going very, on with Michael Lorenzen. Very, very good. Now, look, I've done this very, very few times this season, but I want to bring up something just from a validity standpoint. And it's not tooting our own horns. It's just trying to explain to people, yeah, we may have some viewpoint that's pretty useful. When they traded for Donnie Sands, what was the first thing I told you about Donnie Sands? <laughs> He's late. Couldn't hit, couldn't hit, couldn't pull the baseball. Had way too much leg kick. Everything he hit was to right field and didn't didn't think too much of it once I dove into it. And I think that's been proven out pretty clearly. Into Mark, you watched like a two-minute video and then said that, and you were spot well, on. Well, I, I, now, watched Matt Veerling. What did I tell you? He had a weird hand wrap behind him, couldn't pull the baseball, didn't really hit for power very often, although he could hit the ball hard, didn't do it that often, didn't pull the ball, wasn't too enthused about it. And look what he did. Look what he does. He, he singles the right a, field. He's got a 117 ISO. Doesn't hit with men on base, and he's pretty powerless. Okay, but I think he's productive in the sense of getting on base. I think you got to give him some value yes, there. He's okay, but he's exactly the same player he was in Philly, just with more opportunity. Yeah, that's true. Okay? So the bottom line is, and know, hey, well, Nick Maton, what did I tell you about Nick Maton right when they I, went out and I got made, him? I, I made a mistake on Nick Maton. But what I did thought, I tell you about him? I remember, I went through it with you in the offseason. I said, hey, look, here's the deal. Here's exactly what he can hit. Here's exactly what he can't hit. Here's exactly where he's going to hit the ball. Here's exactly where he will not hit the ball. Same and it's thing. been worse. And it's been worse. Yeah, it got worse because he tried to swing his way out of it, and he had more opportunities. So the point is, all I'm saying is, yeah, we have a podcast, but. We do, we do have some meager amount of skill about this stuff. So we're not just making this stuff up. I mean, uh, go back and read the deep dives on Matt Veerling, Nick Maton, and Donnie Sands. They did one for all three players. I dove into all their data, and it will literally tell you exactly the players they were when the Tigers acquired them. And then you go watch. If you're watching the games, you know exactly what kind of players they are right now. There ain't much of a difference. It's almost like they should give you a job as a beat writer at a big city newspaper. So, oh, thank um, you. <laughs> all right. Well, enough tooting our own horn. I just wanted to at least bring those things up because we don't pull these things out of thin air. We, we actually, from time to time, do make some educated opinions about some things. We're wrong like everybody else. Heck, the best scouts in the world are wrong all the time. But, and players do improve themselves and, and change the narrative. But what I'm saying is, yeah, occasionally we're much more right than people want to think, and especially people that want to endlessly argue with me about things on the internet until I finally, out of fatigue, either have to block you or stop discussing it. So, all right, it's been uh, it's been a, a week of four wins, three losses, but a lot more of the same. Um. Going to Minnesota, going to Cleveland. Hopefully, they've played well in the division. They can keep doing that. They've actually played well on the road. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a good week coming up. It's drawing very, very close to the big Savannah Evan wedding. September it's, 8th. Uh, September 8th. So, we're uh, down to about three weeks away, huh? Yeah, I'm excited. I can't wait. Right. Savannah's pretty stressed yeah. out, but we're hanging in there. You uh, you know where everyone's sitting yet? No, we're getting that down right now. That's kind of our. It needs. We need to get that done. So we've got our final headcount and stuff like that. And now we're. 
piecing together where everyone's going to be at. We had our you know last meeting today with our wedding coordinator to go over you know timing and, and everything like that. And Savannah's absolutely crushed it. So shout out to Savannah, hat tip to Savannah, all of the above. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Mark Gorosh is rooting for people that don't like each other to be sitting at the same table because I want to hear some drama stories. <laughs> We're going to avoid that. Ah. All right. Well, I want to remind everybody to uh, comment, rate, subscribe. You can find Days of Roar embedded in the Detroit Free Press under every Evan Petzold article. And the first day it comes out, it's on the front page. I always like to look at that and go, can you believe they put Mark Gorash on the front page of the Free Press with Evan Petzold? So it is uh, entertaining to me when that happens. Um I want to uh, thank our executive producers, Anjanette Delgado and Kirk Crawford. I want to thank our producer, Robin Chan, who's going to have his work cut out for him this week. I want to uh, thank my grandson, Braden Michael Gorosh, who I spent the last three days with, and he was just more fun than I could ever imagine. And uh, he's really talking up a storm, and that makes me kind of happy. All right, for uh, my partner, Evan Petzold, Uh, This is Mark Gorosh. We're going to see you next week. And I want to say peace. Peace.